Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I just had, I don't know if I want to call it an argument, but let's say a discussion with my kids. I just got off the home studio set after doing my Fox Business Claim and Countdown show, and they said, what's for dinner? I got nothing. Okay, I shot my bolt last night when, and I'm going to totally admit this, I poured a bottle of teriyaki sauce over pieces of white meat chicken, roasted it in a pan, and then totally lied and said, I got the recipe from the New York Times. So that took all of my energy. (laughs) We're doing takeout again tonight, which is fine because we're so happy to support restaurants, which for months now have been shuttered due to the pandemic. So why am I talking to you at all about food and my epic cooking fail? Well, of course, due to the lockdown, many of you have been forced into the kitchen to create your own meals as a means of dinner survival. This week's podcast guest knows a thing or two about being in the kitchen. He has perhaps the most in-depth understanding of the restaurant business from soup to nuts to everything in between. After learning at the apron strings of his mama, He climbed all the way up the culinary ladder to become a top chef known not only in the U.S., but around the world. Throughout his career, he's been able to transform lives through food and help Americans make nutritious meals with his special recipes that involve only a few simple but fresh ingredients. I'd like to welcome famed restaurateur, TV star chef, and author of 13 cookbooks, Rocco Despirito, to Everyone Talks to Liz. It's such a pleasure to be here, Liz. Thank you so much for the wonderful introduction. So back to your problem for dinner tonight. Do you want me to solve it for you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I really do. You know, it's hard enough being in the, the restaurant industry, and so many have been, have been shut down. But uh, you are the man who could help me and so many others because I talk to my friends, and they've just been at wit's end. Yeah, People, I've, been, I've been many... Crazy. Many of people secret chefs, so I've, I've helped <laughs> lots of people get through their dinnertime dilemmas and uh, ask them what's in their fridge and coach them through putting meals together at the last minute. So if you happen to have uh, spaghetti, bacon, eggs, and cheese, I can teach you how to make carbonara, and that, that's something everyone loves. Well, I, and all it takes is three Three Four ingredients. ingredients: spaghetti, spaghetti, bacon, eggs, and cheese. Literally, uh, like a bacon, egg, and cheese on a roll, but in a bowl. <laughs> I love it. Okay, so we, we want our viewers to wait around for that. So we'll get that exact right, we'll get, we'll recipe at the later. end. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, and, and I want to begin with the fact that you actually started learning how to cook at a very young age, I believe six. You showed an interest at age six. Talk about everything that brought you to that point. I do remember being very interested in what my mother was doing. It was more an interest in what my mother was doing. I was the youngest of three. And so I got sort of, quote, stuck with her a lot. And she got stuck with me a lot. And uh, she would uh, volunteer for various groups. And she would always bring food. 
So I'd always end up in the kitchen watching her make a frittata or make, you know, uh, cookies or bread or, or something. And she'd bring these, these objects, these, these food products that she'd made to the Rosary Society or to a church bake sale. And they were always the most popular uh, things there. People would either buy them or eat them the quickest. And it naturally caught my curiosity. And I was like, what is my mama doing to these foods that <laughs> makes them so popular? I mean, the frittata would, van- it would literally vanish into thin air the minute we arrived. Uh, I, you know, we, we then said the whole rosary in its entirety. So I think people were very happy to have a, a quick food break before that. Um, but it was all, you know, it was for me uh, as a young child, it was church, my mother and, you know, outside playing baseball. And, uh, I ended up in the kitchen a lot because, uh, my brother and uh, my siblings were a little older than me. So we didn't really hang out together. And, she used to let me make bread with her, and one of the first things she taught me how to make with leftover bread is pizza fritta, which is fried dough or funnel cake. It's the dough you fry that you put, you know, powdered sugar on. And, oh, I, uh, I, excuse yeah, me. Yeah, who doesn't I, love that, right? Uh, right. I know it quite well from the Ohio State Fairs that I covered when go. I worked in it's Cleveland. It's the same exact thing. It's the same <laughs> exact thing. The Ohio funnel cake and the Italian pizza fritta is literally the same thing. <laughs> but, but before you, you kind of charge ahead... I want to know about your mom, whom you call Mama. Uh, so my mom was uh, an extraordinary woman who came from Italy when she was 39 years old, I believe, in the 1950s. She, uh, of course, uh, survived World War II, various earthquakes, and you know, lived that that immigrant story that we, you know, heard so so often uh, in search of a, of a brighter future for herself, her family, and her children. She traveled to America on a ship over six weeks, and uh, she found work here, and she made a life for herself, and uh, was an incredibly optimistic person in in the face of many, many adversities that she had to face during her uh, time here, you know, trying to uh, acculturate and become an American citizen and all the things that you do when you you, you travel over here from Italy in the 1950s. and then the three of us children didn't make it easier for her. You know, naturally when we, we were old enough to realize what was going on, we put a lot of pressure on her and my dad to speak English at home and, you know, learn what the SATs were and, uh, you know, <laughs> just, you know, a few basic things of American life, uh, you know, teach, you know, teach me about baseball, uh, that kind of thing. Um, but she stayed incredibly positive and optimistic to the day she passed away. She uh, is a bit of a miracle and a very, um, uh, in a life fraught with lots of challenges. She believed in the American dream so strongly mm-hmm. that she manifested itself for her. For her. Uh, she just, she made it happen. And uh, to this day, I, people ask me about her and recall times that they met her and had pictures of her, uh, pictures with her uh, from when she was a chef at my restaurant. Um, so uh, a really great example of the, the, the greatest uh, generation you know, coming to America and doing well. Well, I I find it very fascinating because a lot of chefs have that passion and they learn young and they love cooking, but they don't understand about the business. You actually went and got a business degree, correct? And how much did that Mm -hmm. help you, do you believe, in opening restaurants and, and quite frankly, keeping them open? The world is littered with people 
who said, well, I've got a great couple of recipes and everyone says my food's great and I'm going to open this restaurant and it ends in tears. <laughs> uh, it, it, it's funny because every restaurant is closed now and, and we're all crying. But uh, the, the, uh, the race to open a restaurant usually leaves a few, leaves some people uh, ill-equipped or not fully equipped. The, I don't think there's a person except for maybe five or six restaurateurs who are now looking back at a 40-year successful run who really understand what it takes to be to, mm -hmm. to open a restaurant and be successful, especially in New York City. Uh, it's hard everywhere, but New York City is a very particular kind of challenge and, and uh, difficulty. Um, so I, I did go to business school. I went to college, not necessarily to go to business school. I ended up there because it seemed like the smart thing to do. And I was, of course, already working in restaurants for many, many years at that point. Um, I also made a promise to my parents that I would complete college because it was very, very important to them. Uh, you know how those first generation immigrant parents are, right? They want a doctor or a lawyer. And I well, promised yeah. my mom I'd be a lawyer until I was about 10. And then I said, <laughs> I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm moving, to, moving to the restaurant world. Uh, and she accepted that. Uh, so, so the business degree was definitely very helpful. The college degree was definitely very helpful. The time spent, you know, in the social, the social circumstance that college puts you in, of course, is a very helpful thing to a growing young man or woman. Um, I also went to cooking school separately for, for another degree prior to that. So, you know, about six years of school later, um, I felt ready to enter the industry with a strong start. I certainly didn't think I was ready for, for, for you know, uh, ready to teach people how to open mm -hmm. restaurants. And, and it's been difficult, you know, I'll be honest with you, it's still, still very difficult to know what's right. Uh, as we're as we come out of this corona situation, we're all calling each other and asking each other what what's the right thing to do? Do I do takeout and pick up in a food truck and a zoom class and you know what combination of uh, innovative ideas can I put together to to keep our restaurant alive i I, I have conversations with restaurateurs almost every day about this uh, and no until, one knows the answer so up until this virus, did you think you had seen just about everything? I really had. I really had thought. I've seen a lot in my life. It's funny you ask that question because I, I sort of asked myself, how much, how much have you seen in your life and is it enough and are you happy? Are you satisfied with the things you've accomplished? Do you need to do more? Uh, and it turns, out that it turns out we all need to do a lot more uh, now. Um, but <laughs> I, I felt fairly satisfied with what I'd seen, what I'd accomplished, and, and what, I'd, what, what I was working on to this point. Um, but now we have to rebuild the industry, uh, and all of us need to participate. So we need to, we need to start this journey all over again. And I, I imagine, I, I mean, it's just every day there's something new. Like I said at the top, uh, it's, it's almost impossible to believe. It's like we're, I'm reading a novel, but it's real life. Yeah. So, uh, I felt satisfied. The, the universe wasn't satisfied. So the universe has different plans, obviously. Always. I'm yeah. very interested when I think about starting restaurants to your very first one, Rocco, and the night before you officially opened. Were, was your stomach in knots? I mean, what is that like? Did you even sleep? So the night before an opening, 
is probably a day you thought you were going to open because it's a very um, uh, shifty target. You think you're going to open on a, a certain day, and then, of course, you don't have gas or electricity or the sign-off from some department, you know, that supervises <laughs> restaurants. And so you're always moving the date. And so the night before you open is the day you thought you were going to open. And it just keeps going. It goes on like that for sometimes months. Uh, and you're nervous the whole time, and you're worried about running out of money. And uh, it is a very tense experience. It's also very exciting, the, the allure of – interacting with people in restaurants and being the provider of the pleasure and the provider of the food and the experience is so attractive that it keeps us all, you know, so willingly, you know, dedicated to what seems like an impossible goal. We're all hooked, you know, we're all uh, addicts of, of what it feels like when restaurants go well, do well. Oh, yeah. And it's, it's an, it's an unbelievable feeling. There are very few things that feel that good uh, in life. And you do feel a sense of accomplishment. That's, very, very large, you know, and uh, you you have to if you're if you're going to open a restaurant or you're even a food truck or even a you know a hot dog stand, you have to be prepared for hundreds of unknowns. So it's about controlling the chaos. And now, of course, it's even it's very very much accurate when we say control the chaos. Now it's literally about controlling the chaos uh, and. Uh, and your stomach for adversity. And, and I, I've, always, I've said that for many, many years. The stomach for adversity is a very good, a strong or, or large stomach for adversity is a very good quality to have as a restaurateur. Now it's absolutely necessary uh, if you can still, you know, stay in the game. You know, my ex-brother-in-law opened, I think the restaurant broke up the marriage, but um, he wanted that, to start a restaurant. That happens often. That happens <laughs> exactly. a lot. Exactly. Yeah. And he was not in the restaurant business. He fancied himself a wine expert. And he, I want to I open a, a northern Spanish kind of very niche type of restaurant on Melrose in Los Angeles. And you're right. The whole regulation situation come in and the inspectors have to look. And I remember him going through all of this. But what I most remember was how anxious he was about making sure his investors weren't disappointed. And he literally was such a control freak. He would sit there till two in the morning, closing out the books, and he wanted to be there talking to guests and then watching the, the actual action. He wasn't the chef. Like you, you were the actual yeah. owner and the chef. Yeah, yeah. I can't imagine what kind of pressure that is on a 24-7 basis. It's, it's pressure, but it's also thrilling. And there's, there's, you know, you know, the type of person who enjoys that, that, uh, you know, rush balancing act, that balancing act and the rush that you get the rush. Uh, there are a lot of us out there <laughs> and, uh, you know, you know, maybe uh, other people gamble or jump off of mountainsides in you know, jet suits. I'm not sure what those people do to get that rush, but, uh, but we, we do restaurants and, it's a detail oriented business. So if you're, you know, OCD and you love arranging, you know, a million particles to form the perfect <laughs> atom, you know, then it's the perfect business for you. It really is. And there's so many ways you can get caught up in minutia and detail. And, uh, but the funny thing is that it all makes a difference. So the, the level of detail really does impact the guest experience and you, you can see it 
immediately. And I think this is probably the, the part about restaurants that makes it so addictive is that it's um, immediate gratification. So you, you open up, you know, at five o'clock and by six o'clock, you know how you're doing. And I think there are very few businesses like that. Uh, you know, maybe the live TV business is a little, a little bit like that, oh, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. So you're checking your ratings. We're checking our, you know, reservation book and, and our revenue and the comments. And it's, uh, it's like, it's like uh, Instagram likes, you know, I'm yeah. sure there's a little dose of serotonin that gets released every time a customer says, we loved your food. We loved your experience. We love being here. Thank you. Well, pre actually pre social media, you guys were at the whim of food critics, mm. some of whom have, can be outrageously ridiculous. But talk about the food critic thing. You know, they come in several times, and sometimes they come in incognito, correct? Do you have any, any uh, idea so, that they're so, there? So they, they typically come in incognito. Uh, they, they, all, they never announce themselves. The ones that do are not legit food critics. They're just looking for a free meal. And there are not a lot of those. <laughs> there are uh, just, just a few. Uh, I, think, I think they're still around, too. It's funny. They're, the, they're sort of legendary. Uh, and, uh, and they're so upfront about the transaction. It's kind of, mm-hmm. I'm surprised no one's talked about it in a book or you know, in one of the novels or in, you know, like an Anthony Bourdain tell-all. Uh, because it's pretty funny. Um, but yeah, so they don't, they don't announce themselves and what you do to prepare is collect photos. <laughs> this is pre-internet. You collect photos that were taken, uh, you know, without their knowledge and you, you look at their behavior like you're playing the game clue, you know, just to, to figure out <laughs> who they are and what room they did it in. It's it's funny. So if they order the sweetbreads, then you know it, it's either a serious foodie or food critic, right? Because no one, right no away. average person is going to order the sweetbreads, right? If they order a lot of dishes and they're trying a lot of things, if it's two people and they order eight appetizers, you know it's a food critic. Uh, if one person is not speaking at all, that's usually the food critic, and they come in with an accomplice, <laughs> a friend to help to help orchestrate the whole thing. Because sometimes we recognize their voices. Because um, we talk to them on the phone, usually when they fact check for reviews. Yeah, so there's this whole thing, and it used to be the one and only way you could get your name out there. It's still extremely important, but of course, you know, uh, the popular uh, popular reaction to your restaurant as expressed on social media and Yelp uh, and all those and all the stuff that's out there now. Uh, but isn't that a double edged sword? Also, have a big factor. Yeah, it's a double edged sword because one angry person who just had a bad meal or didn't like what he or she got can can get out and just slay or slam a restaurant yeah i mean internet muscle is still very very powerful very very uh can be very damaging when people flex it uh Mm -hmm. i i think a lot of people understand now that you have to look at the aggregate of you know uh comments and, and yeah. make make a decision about that it's funny because when i uh, publish a book the first few comments are always very negative and i know those are my competitors mm, always. this is this, this is uh, so you know this do you know this i story? know all about this oh it's so funny right i thought i was a little paranoid but apparently i'm not being paranoid all so about the this. first three or four are always one star and the worst comments ever and they live at the top of the 
you know, all the comments. And so when people look, all they see are those first four. It's, you know, it's strategic and, and uh, done to, you know, try to destroy your book career. Uh, pretty, pretty funny stuff. But if you look at like the, over, you know, the aggregate, I have a 4.5 on my last book out of hundreds of reviews, but people will only see the first four every time they look up my reviews. But uh, so it's a little bit like that in the restaurant business. Um, uh, if you, if you go to a Yelp or, uh, yeah. you know, uh, any of the other food sites, when you have I to look at the aggregate, but now word of mouth, you know, it's funny. Um, when we lost the single solitary, you know, word of, of authority, the food writer, you know, the Ruth Reichel character in this plot, uh, word of mouth became important again. So a lot of restaurants do well in word of mouth and don't even care about any, you know, real uh, sort of official reviews. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I think about competition. We're all so competitive mm -hmm. in mm -hmm. any industry that brings wild levels of success and or failure. So TV, we're very competitive, but then there is that respect that you have, that healthy respect for competitors. I'm going back to when I was a kid, a long time ago, the Galloping Gourmet. He was among the first TV chefs. Have you ever heard of that? That was maybe a West Coast thing? Graham Kerr, are you Yes, kidding? yes, yes, yes. You, uh, you've read about this. You must have looked this up and read about this. I, I, I not only admire him, but I, oh, I, I did I've not tried read about to, it. I've tried to relaunch his show with me as the star. So I love what he did on TV. I thought he was amazing. And I watched it as a young kid. I watched him and I watched Julia Child, of course. And, and, uh, uh, and he was a big, uh, he was another person that I used to watch in amazement because he would be able to make people so happy with his cooking. And I think I'll never forget at the end of the show, Someone came running down to sit down and eat with him, and yes, yeah. So yes, I think yes. Graham, Graham Kerr was one of the early heroes. Yeah, he was. I love him. I, I'm sure he's a wonderful person. This is Everyone Talks to Liz, and we'll be right back. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Clayman. Just go to Indeed.com slash Clayman right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Clayman. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I'd love to know how your transition to TV happened. Yeah, interesting question. I uh, did not expect no seek out uh, or understand what was happening in food TV while I was opening my first few restaurants. Um, the sort of TV happened to me. It's very different than how it is now where people, you know, at 13 have already decided they're going to be a food influencer, a food TV star, and they, uh, 
they design their career towards that end, which of course is what you should do if that's what you want to do. Uh, back then, the TV chefs uh, had influence, but not the kind of influence they've had in the you know, 90s, 2000s, 2010, right. uh, and current era. And we, although we love them, you know, as children, usually, if you talk to a chef, they'll all tell you they love watching Jacques Pepin and Julia Child and, you know, Graham Kerr. Uh, but then moved on to, you know, sort of real chef restaurants, restaurateurs, and learn how to cook from those people, which is the way it was. But now you can learn everything that we had to um, intern for, let's call it. Uh, the term was stagiaire. We had to be a stagiaire. So that means working for free for many months or many years to learn the craft uh, so that you were worthy to be paid for it at some point. And that's how you did it back then. So I worked for many, many chefs you know, for free for many years over a period of many years and collected little bits of information. Uh, and so we were very focused on our craft, all of us from that era, 80s, 90s, early 2000s. And as the TV world took on, uh, as the food TV world became more important in popular culture, they sort of came to us and said, hey, we need people to come on and teach people how to cook. And Will you do it? And we thought nothing of it. I'm, t I'm talking about all of the early guys, you know, uh, Bobby and uh, uh, all of, you know, Sarah Moulton and. Uh, sure. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. Puck, Bobby Flay. Puck, of course. Yeah, yeah. Gordon Ramsay. And, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and we just thought, oh, this is a, I guess, a fun side thing, sort of, you know, something cool to do every once in a while. And of course, by the end of the 90s, that turned into it sort of flipped, the script flipped, and, and it became your, one of your number one marketing you know, drivers uh, for, for restaurants. Is there a Which I did, not, I did not foresee coming. I was very shocked when I realized what happened over, over the, that 15-year period. We went from really only focusing on the craft and not worrying about marketing at all, right. thinking mm -hmm. that if you're really good, people will come, which was true for a long time. Uh, you know, Andre Sultner at Lutest never did a TV show in his life, but you couldn't get a restaurant at Lutest. You couldn't get a, a table at Lutest for 30 years because it was just that good. Uh, but it completely flipped, and now it's all about driving customers to your, you know, brick and mortar, your digital experience using TV and, and, and social media. Yeah, you really have to massage it and engineer it. And I'm not, yeah. I'm not sure, I, look, no. you can't fight evolution, but... You see what happened to Le Cirque, for example, in Syria. Great documentary, you know, then they had to move. And then the next thing you know, they just could not survive in sort of that old school way. There are so many chef movies. And one sticks out, and I don't know if you saw it, The 100 Foot Journey starring. I did. Uh, I did see it. Yeah. Helen Mirren and Ampere. Yeah. To me, I you talk about that stagiaire where the son of the Indian immigrant who had yes. a restaurant across the street from her Michelin star restaurant. He wanted to learn and he obviously went to Paris and ended up getting his stars, etc., and then went to mm -hmm. work with her. Is there a chef whom you admire? And, and it can be one of these frenemies where you just, Oh, you're so envious or, or not. But you say, you know what, that guy or that woman, incredible there are many uh there are a lot of incredible chef chef personalities 
chef restaurateurs, businessmen out there, uh, the world of restaurants exploded and, and literally, you know, tripled and quadrupled in size. So there's, there's so many really, really high quality experiences out there. And, uh, yeah, I mean, Wolfgang Puck is, is one of those people that astonishes me every time I interact with him. He's the, you know, he's a class act. His food is amazing. The restaurants are so fun and it doesn't matter which one he's in or which one you're in. Somehow he's always there. (laughs) And and also, on (laughs) you know, QVC at the same time. I'm not sure how he does it. Uh, but yeah, the body doubles. Yeah, Daniel Boulou, Jean-Georges Varengerichsen. I mean, uh, David Boulay has has always astonished me. Uh, you know, and then there's some of the younger people out there now that uh, there's so many of them. It's it's hard to pick one, but there's so many uh, people just cranking every day to build. You know, Angie Marr, Beatrice in, and. Uh, uh, some some other people's name yeah. I can't remember right now, but there's a, there are a lot of people that I admire in the business. The the you know the scramble to to acquire information and the the challenges that you used to come with that are no longer there, and they're no longer obstacles to acquiring information and the data you need and and the experiences you need. Now you can go work anywhere and get paid to do your internship, and uh, you know the labor force is has, is Different. so tight. So, um, so there are a lot of really good people out there. And, uh, I mean, in New York, there's probably a thousand of them that I admire quite a bit. Uh, John George von Richten is, uh, probably at the top of that list. He, um, understood early on that his labor force was everything. And he, I remember he, uh, paid better. He treated his staff, you know, in the nineties or in the eighties when you could get away with a lot more than you can now in terms of making people work long hours. Uh, he, he, he pushed less than other chefs and he, he still has chefs that have worked for him since the Swiss Drake hotel in 1984. I mean, it's, it's just amazing. Uh, the amount of talent he's acquired over the years. Um, of course my mentor, Greg Kunz, who passed away recently and, uh, and not, not to, I don't want to forget to mention Floyd Cardoz, who was uh, the food, the culinary uh, producer on Three Foot, uh, Three Foot Journey. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who also passed away recently from coronavirus. Um, those oh, are some people God. I admired a lot. Yeah, Greg Kunz was uh, the chef of Les Benas, an incredibly lauded restaurant, four stars, New York Times, and uh, pretty much unlike anything that had come before it. And to this day, there's nothing really that compares the level of perfection. Talk about OCD and living in the details. He was, he was like um, an algorithm machine of recipes and, you know, presentations for food. And he just, he was constantly doing the math in his brain and uh, an amazing chef. Uh, I hope, I hope he's remembered for the game changer that he was because um, he sort of passed away right at the beginning of the Corona crisis and there wasn't even a memorial. And so hopefully, hopefully he'll be remembered. I don't know if you ever ate at Les Benas in your New York, journeys but uh i have not had the pleasure i i do love wonderful restaurants and i mean i i ate at 11 madison uh, which is very famous very expensive and it it may not reopen its doors due to the coronavirus i heard that Yeah, yeah that's shocking right yeah it really is and one of the things that i think if you look at silver linings out of this crisis is that 
I've never had more recipes passed among my friends than I have now where people are saying, make this, try this, go on this website, do this, do that. And people are almost getting back to a healthier way of eating, which was always the heart of what you did. Simple, fresh ingredients, few ingredients, making the, the four ingredient uh, spaghetti carbonara or you know all of the things that you do that are now in your 13 cookbooks. You do have a new book that I want to talk about. This one is partially the keto hype, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but with a Rocco Despirito twist on it. What made you want to do this? So I've been a fan of, of keto Atkins, uh, low-carb uh, living for a long, long time. It's, it's the diet that got me into uh, a healthy lifestyle in 2004, 5, 6, and got me into doing uh, triathlons and, and a really high level of health and performance. Uh, and I've always done low-carb books, but keto is a very particular type of low-carb diet where there's you know 60 to 70% fat, 20% uh, protein, 10% carbs. So if you look at your macronutrition and your overall calorie intake, it's got to be broken down that, that way. So when you're eating that much fat, you really have to be um, clever about how you put recipes together because otherwise everything just tastes greasy and sort of disgusting. Uh, <laughs> but we uh, now there's delicious grass-fed butter out there and coconut, beautiful uh, raw coconut oil, um, unlike the processed stuff in the 70s that gave coconut oil a bad name. So there are lots of tools. Yeah, remember that? There are yeah. lots of tools out there now to, to have to make a keto diet successful, but not just for two weeks or three weeks because everyone can do you know keto for 10 days. And then you get very, very bored of the food because you're eating, you know, bacon and cheese and steaks every night. And um, I know that sounds crazy because who, who wouldn't want to eat that every night? But turns out when you get to eat that every night, you get bored of it very quickly. Of so I, I, I added a lot of plant-based foods because uh, it turns out that, you know, almost, almost all fruits and vegetables can be part of a keto diet, can be keto friendly. I simply remove the junk carbs and the processed carbs. And once you get rid of all that, you're talking about, you know, fruits and vegetables that are typically loaded with fiber, lots of phyto and micronutrients and uh, work well in a keto uh, atmosphere. So but I, you, I, you make it, you make it enticing because it's keto comfort. Well, thank food. you. I mean, it's Rocco's keto comfort food diet. How are sales of this book? I would only imagine people love this. There was a very good reaction to this book. Thank you for asking, and thank you for the compliment. Uh, the the book launched in the middle of the Corona crisis, so it sort of came to an abrupt halt. Hopefully, right. we'll pick we'll pick up where we left off uh -huh. uh, soon. Um, but great reaction. If you look at Amazon and the reviews we talked about earlier, you know, all but the first four are overwhelmingly positive, and I think it's gotten the the best reaction of uh, all my books so far. Um, people know what keto is now, which is very cool. And even even though I've wanted to do a book where I could put keto on the cover, my publishers and I, up till recently, didn't feel comfortable because we didn't think people knew what it was, and 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 a lot of people were sort of scared of it and uh, very confused about keto versus Atkins. Uh, but now it's a lifestyle for a lot of people. It's a twelve billion dollar business in America. You know, this, about thirty percent of Americans have. Uh, tried a keto diet. So it's very popular. It's, it's very much uh, something people know about, uh, which is fun because Liz, normally I have to spend the first 20 minutes of talking about my book by explaining what the concept is. 
And now, now that it says keto comfort, everyone gets it on, you know, just by reading the title. When I wrote pound a day diet, oh my God, trying to explain to people how that worked was tiresome, tiresome. <laughs> well, it's a I great find... book and the diet works really well, but it's just it's difficult to explain. Yeah, I get it. Uh, read it. Everybody should buy it and read it because again, what you do is you put that healthier twist on it. All right. I know a lot of our listeners are dying for that four ingredient spaghetti carbonara, but, but I got to I got to put you off a little bit longer because I really want to ask you about the most memorable meal you've ever had that you did not cook. Uh, is there a restaurant that you sure, remember? Yeah. And because, yes. And then, I, and then I will share mine and then you have to share the rest. Okay. All right. So uh, there are two. I'm going to tell you, one is a, a meal my grandmother made. I'm, I'm going to tell you about a different one. There's a restaurant called Brasserie Flow in Paris. I, I know I was it. Living, I know it. You know, know it? it? Okay. Yeah, <laughs> so was, yes, that's right. That's right. So I was living and working in Paris uh, at 18 years old. Uh, I, I went to Paris very underprepared. No, I, I didn't know anything about visas. I didn't know anything about a Parisian lifestyle. I didn't know Americans couldn't get apartments in Paris without lots of connections and tons of cash. Uh, and even then it was very difficult. Uh, so I ended up, you know, living on like a 500 calorie a day diet. I lost about 30 pounds. I cooked in uh, <laughs> many restaurants. I trailed and did stages in many restaurants. Uh, I worked for free for my, my chef there at the Hotel Prince de Galles. And um, my uncle came to visit. My uncle was a bit eccentric. He flew to Germany and then drove a Mercedes Benz that he bought in Germany through Monte Carlo to, to visit the casinos with another uncle. And <laughs> then he drove himself to Paris. I mean, he could have just bought this car at home right away. Couldn't have saved that much money, but he just, he loved this whole adventure anyway. So when he came to Paris to visit me, uh, I was like, we're going out and we're going out somewhere expensive and we're going to have lots of raw seafood. And I remember ordering, uh, they, they let me order. I was speaking French at that point. I'd been there long enough and I'd gotten drunk enough times to learn how ah, to speak French. Of course. Drinking's very important in learning a new language. I don't know if you know this, but. Yes, of course. Yes. It helps. Yeah. <laughs> Liquid cards, <laughs> very, very important. Because um, usually you know the language before you're willing to speak it in public. Right. And so, yeah. Uh, so, so he came and I, you know, I literally, I made 6,000 francs a month, which was minimum wage, which is, uh, I think, $1,000 a month maybe now. Uh, or was equivalent to about a thousand dollars a month back then. Uh, to, you know, that's not a lot to pay for every every expense that you have. Uh, but, it's what you, and, but this is important. It's what people do when they are passionate about something, and you kind of have to do that before you make it big. You used to. I, I'm, I'm not sure that that's true anymore. Is it? I mean, I if you look at the world of IG influencers. I don't know that that's true anymore, and I'm not uh, happy maybe. about it, but I'd like it to be the old system that I suffered through for many, many years. But I think there are ways to skip all those steps now. Maybe and, not. you know, that might be the right thing. It may, yeah, it in, television, if you, to, in television, if you're glib and you can sound good for about a minute and 30 seconds as a contributor, and I put that in quotes, suddenly you get your own show. Whereas I was schlepping in Columbus, Ohio, freezing my tuchas off. 
Yeah, probably you probably were a production assistant first, right? And yeah, yeah. Probably ran the teleprompter and, at KCBS yep. in Los Angeles. <laughs> exactly. Yep, and then started in a small oh, town. Yeah, and I watched a lot of people in the TV business go through that process. And so, some people are very, very high up now, uh, done really well. But they, you know, they definitely put in the work. Uh, but you're right now. Now, if you're if you if you can be cute for two minutes, you uh, and say something crazy, mm -hmm. you, you never know what'll happen. So anyway, I was very hungry, very thin, so thin, my uncle accused me of being a heroin addict. This is a true story. <laughs> he said, Rocco, what's wrong with you? Are you on the heroin? <laughs> I'll forget. I was like, no, I'm working harder than I've ever worked in my life. I can't afford to buy any food. I eat everything I can get my hands on while I'm working, but that's not enough. And uh, they make you take days off in France. So, you know, on your days off, you're like, either dreaming about going back to work or lucky enough that someone invited you out. So uh, he let me order. I spoke French. They didn't. I think I ordered an 18-foot tower of seafood. I, I don't remember ever seeing one that big, even at Balthazar uh, since. And we ate that for about six hours, and we had the best time of our life. We were oh. outside on the terrace, you know, Paris at night, Saint-Germain-de-Pré. Right. Uh, a friend of mine who worked at another restaurant that I was – trailing at was the waiter that night so he was giving us you know uh little extras throughout the whole experience they absolutely loved it they'd never eaten anything like that before you know they're italian so of course they understand about raw seafood but never seen it you know pre presented like that and it was one of yeah. those movie magic nights in paris in the 80s uh that i'll never forget every detail of that was that's probably one of my most memorable meals would it surprise you that mine was in France too, not in no, Paris? No, it doesn't surprise me. It makes sense. But I, my, I was a student at the Sorbonne in Paris for my junior you year in college. Wow. I did. Okay. I did. And my parents came to visit from L.A. And we rented a car and we drove south. We were driving down south. We wanted to go to Avignon. And we stumbled upon a tiny little hotel that had a restaurant in it, and it was called Le Priorier. Mm -hmm. We just were tired, so we pulled off and we went in there in Avignon. It mm -hmm. happened to have been where the author Judith Krantz lived while she wrote mm -hmm. that book, Mistral's Daughter. But mm -hmm. we did not know that at the time. We just knew that this place felt special and it was late. We went into the restaurant, which since then has... Five stars Michelin? It goes up to five or three? Three. Three. Three, three star Michelin restaurant. But it was that good in your memory that you gave it an additional fictional two stars. I love that. Exactly. And I wasn't exactly. <laughs> Let's call the Michelin guide and let them know. I just kind of promoted. I just promoted yeah. it. Um, no, but there are five star hotels and it's very confusing the star system. So We uh, literally yeah. ordered whatever was left there because it was late. And I will mm -hmm. never forget the bowl of bisque that mm. they presented to me with handmade mm. hand croutons, tiny little perfect squares that were drenched in butter. And to this day, mm. that was uh, 35 years ago or whenever the hell I was a junior in high school, college rather. And to this day, I can taste those croutons and that soup. And I can feel that atmosphere. So I know what you mean when you talk about, you know, 
that moment where you got the Fruit de Mer tower, the fruit yes. of the sea tower. Oh, it's yes. just incredible. All right. Yeah. So now that we've shared and that. You, and you know, you know, in France, the, the, the Plateau Fruit de Mer includes, you know, cockles and every little Everything. snail and barnacle, and, uh, <laughs> you know, urchin and a million things you didn't know existed. And they're all so fresh and so good and they're open with love and they're, they're open and right in oh. front of you. It's, it's incredible. Yeah, I can still see the I can still see the guy with the little uh, oyster knife and the big uh, heavy sort of rubber apron and all the ice sort of dripping. Oh my who, god! Who, by the way, has thing. probably worked at that restaurant for forty years. Yeah, yeah really take pride right. yeah. in their job. It's not a transition yeah. type of job to be a servant. No, it's no. a very respectful position. All right, true. The okay. recipe: spaghetti carbonara. Four ingredients, folks. Are you ready? Set. Go, Rocco. Okay, so it's uh, I, I make fun of it by calling it bacon, egg, and cheese in a bowl. The the <laughs> most you know popular breakfast in America is bacon, egg, and cheese on a roll. And spaghetti carbonara happens to be bacon, egg, and cheese in a bowl with spaghetti instead of bread. Uh, so if you have bacon, egg, and Parmigiano Reggiano, ideally, you can make spaghetti carbonara. Almost everyone has spaghetti at at home somewhere. Uh, and if you don't, you can use any pasta. But traditionally, it's uh, made with spaghetti, guanciale, which is pork jowl, but if you don't have it, you can use bacon, of course, and pecorino romano. Most people don't have that, but they have parmigiano reggiano, mm -hmm. and egg yolks, and most people have eggs. So uh, the recipe for two people is six ounces of spaghetti, ideally, or any other pasta. It's three egg yolks, four if you want it to be super creamy. It's three ounces of bacon lardon, which is just bacon. Uh, ideally guanciale again, but I know you don't have that and you can't get it. Uh, and it's, it's hard to find uh, right now. Um, so just use any bacon or any salume scraps that you have around. You know. mm -hmm. uh, the Italians are going to kill me for saying this, but you know, if you have prosciutto or salami or, <laughs> or uncured bacon, or you can use that. Three ounces of that chopped up uh, in large chunks and about three ounces of Pecorino, if you, you don't have pecorino and you're using parmigiano-reggiano, then you want about five ounces. And this is a, a pasta that never, never um, goes into a pan. It gets cooked in a bowl, uh, and it's, a, it's an emulsified sauce that's made with the pasta cooking liquid, the egg yolks, and the cheese. All those, those three ingredients melt and combine to form an emulsification with like a hollandaise sauce. Hmm. And when people make it, they don't even realize they're doing something so technically difficult, but it's really cool. So you cook your pasta, you saute the bacon until it's translucent, you don't brown it and you don't cook it so that it's hard as like a poker chip, you don't want that. You want it to be a, a soft, tender texture. Okay. Uh, you put three egg yolks in a, bowl, in a stainless steel bowl, you add the cheese to the bowl and you mix those together with a fork or a whisk. And when the pasta is about 75% done, so that means, uh, Still a small speck of dry, uncooked pasta in the center, but bending, bending uh, when you pick it up. Okay. When it's like that, definitely a little bit under al dente. Okay. You put that into your bowl with the mixed cheese mixture, egg, egg yolk and cheese mixture, and you toss and shake the bowl while you add the pasta and allow a lot of the water to adhere to the pasta. Don't drain the pasta, in other words. That ah. hot water is the catalyst. That hot water is how the sauce is made. Uh -huh. You, you want to flip that in that bowl over and over and over and over again, just like you see the pros do on TV. 
and it's just a stainless steel salad bowl. It's not a fancy pan. And you, you want to stir it while you're flipping it with a fork or tongs or tweezers or whatever you have. And you'll see that the, that really weird yellow sand sandy looking combination of ingredients will start to become a velvety, luscious, dark yellow, uh, delicious sauce. And at the end of that, you'll add the bacon or you can add the bacon on top of each plate. And then, of course, top with lots huh. of cheese and black pepper at the end. Black pepper is what makes it carbonara. Um, oh. the, the legend is that the carbonari are uh, Italian coal miners, and this is what they would make for, you know, quickly during a break, uh, because these are ingredients that everyone always had. So that's what car where carbonara comes from. Ah, and the black yeah. okay, yeah. you guys, you just learned something. I did not know that. I always wondered, what's this carbonara part? I, mean, I, I know it's cool, right? And it turns out to be yeah. like such a simple, such, such a simple uh, explanation. Oh, Rocco, it is so wonderful to hear how hard you work to get where you are today, but how what a passion you have for what you do, and that's exactly what we try and impart to people in so many different ways on this podcast. So thank you. Thank you for saying that. I appreciate that. So it's funny to this day, uh, the thing that makes me the happiest is the thing that made me the happiest when I was 14 and decided to be a chef. So it's cooking and it's always been cooking and uh, cooking for someone, of course. Um, hopefully you'll try the recipe. And you'll let me know how it went. Yeah, and then I don't have to lie to my yeah. kids anymore. <laughs> yeah, it's okay. Lying in the kitchen's okay. They shouldn't know everything when it comes to food in the kitchen. Yeah. Rocco Despirito, cookbook author, star TV chef, world-renowned. What an honor to have you on Everyone Talks to Liz. And Thank you very much. Anytime. And uh, everybody, okay, you want something delicious? Monday through Friday on the Fox Business Network, the Claim and Countdown. How's that for a segue? <laughs> we all know, right? you got to make money in this world. And we're there to help you grow it, preserve it and hopefully make it. So thanks so much for joining us on Everyone Talks to Liz. I'll see you next time. The Fox News Rundown, a contrast of perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. Your daily dose of news twice a day. Featuring insight from top newsmakers, reporters, and Fox News contributors. Listen and subscribe now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.